0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. We're at Forest Home. It's a wonderful retreat facility in the San Bernardino Mountains of Southern California. And the late start is due to the fact that we had some technical problems and may continue to have some technical problems, we're gonna do the very best that we can for this particular live Q&A. What we do on Thursday afternoons is, as much as I'm able to, I gather together with our YouTube audience, and we begin with a time where I start with a lead question, and our lead question is um, something that comes in by email, social media, whatever it might be, and then we go on from there and take whatever questions that you our audience right into us. And so I am here in what they call the green room. It's a place where speakers and worship leaders and such get together before each session. I'm here for a week-long family camp. And as part of our family camp, we have, uh, no, we, Forest Homes Family Camp, I'm the evening speaker. So every night this week I've been speaking to the group. And the theme for this particular week is a campy Christmas and so it's been great. I've been able to do some wonderful Christmas messages here at the end of July and enjoying that time. Okay, so what I'm gonna do today is deal with our lead question and our lead question comes from uh, a questioner named Mary. Mary, and I'm reading this from the laptop that's here on my lap particularly, a question from Mary having to do with judgment. And here's the question. Um, after saying some nice things about my commentary, Mary asks this question based on Matthew chapter 12. Hold on just for a minute here. I think I'm good. Do you want to come and say hi to everybody? Sure. This is my wife, Inga Lil. She's been just making sure that I've yes. been getting started with the technical yes. difficulties. Seems like it's going pretty good. So far, so good. So we'll far, see so how good. it goes. Okay, I'll Thanks. see you after lunch. All right, see you Bye. then. Bye-bye. So... This is the question that comes in from Mary. Again, after saying some nice things about my commentary, Mary asked this question based on Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. Okay, this is Matthew 12, 36 and 37, where it says, but I say to you, for for every idle word men speak, these are the words of Jesus, I should say, they will give account of it in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Mary asked this question, Can you clarify the day of judgment and how it may relate to our reward in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Well, Mary, in answering your question, I'd go back to Matthew chapter 12 and just kind of set it in the context. Verses 36 and 37 of Matthew chapter 12 are the words of Jesus to the religious leaders of his time and place specifically to the Pharisees that are mentioned back in verse 24. These religious leaders saw the remarkably powerful, and if I could also add, the remarkably compassionate work of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had just freed a man who was demon-possessed, and at least two of the effects of that man's demon-possession was that he was made blind and mute, and that man who was demon-possessed was freed from that demon-possession, And with that great authority and great love that Jesus has, Jesus set the man free. The reaction of the Pharisees to that amazing miracle, full of the power and compassion of Jesus, the reaction of the religious leaders was to say that Jesus was in league with Satan. So Jesus responded to that accusation. And in verses 25 through 29, He exposed the very bad logic that lied behind that accusation. First of all, Jesus pointed out that it made no sense for Satan to fight against Satan. Number two, Jesus said that if the only way to cast out demons is by the power of Satan, then how does that explain um, how the exorcists among the Pharisees did their work? And then number three, Jesus pointed out, that these demonic deliverances actually show that Jesus has come to defeat the power of Satan, uh, not that he's in league with it. Then Jesus gave those religious leaders a very solemn warning, the warning of the danger of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not gonna go into that in any great depth right now. We have some other videos that speak specifically about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But their hardened rejection of Jesus that was evident in their very depraved ability to see the good and powerful work of God and then to say, this is the work of Satan. That meant that they were committing or perhaps that they were in danger of committing the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that is the hardened, settled rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony regarding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us then Jesus warned them of coming judgment in light of all of that. So it seems best to say that the judgment that Mary asked about in Matthew chapter 12 is the ultimate judgment, what we sometimes call the great white throne judgment that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11. Let me read to you that from Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11, it says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books." the sea gave up their dead that were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now this is the ultimate judgment, the division between heaven and hell. This is something that no one escapes And the religious leaders that Jesus spoke to in Matthew chapter 12 were in grave danger of ultimate and eternal destruction. What Jesus is pointing out in that verse where he says what we talked about here in verse uh, 36 and 37, but I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give account for in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned Jesus wanted them to know that their words were not small, insignificant things. Their words accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan, those words revealed their hearts and they would have to give account for those words and the heart behind those words on the day of ultimate judgment. Therefore, it was a very good and compassionate thing for Jesus to give them this warning in hopes that they would listen. Okay. Now, Mary asked, how does this relate to our reward in 1 Corinthians chapter three? And Mary, I'll just have to say that I think it's speaking about two completely different judgments. 1 Corinthians three, I think Mary has in mind the verses 10 through 15. So let me read that to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter three, starting at verse 10. Paul writes, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it's revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which is built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through fire. This judgment described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, very much like the judgment that Paul later describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, this is a judgment of reward. It's not a judgment of salvation because clearly what's being judged in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is each person's work, not the individual themselves, but what they have done or may have not have done for the sake and the cause of Jesus through their lifetime. So really, Mary, uh, I just want to bring it down to this that the judgment Jesus described here in Matthew chapter 12 was the ultimate judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 seems to describe a judgment that's only relevant to believers, a judgment for how they have lived their life. Now, I have to say that it's really sort of a sobering thing for us as believers. And really, any kind of warning or uh, speaking of judgment should be exactly that. It should be something that's kind of sobers us up, that gives us some calm consideration. B- because simply put, that... It is possible for a believer to have a saved soul and at least to some degree a wasted life. What a terrible thing. A saved soul, but a wasted life. And the judgment seat of Christ, which we sometimes call, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, the Bema seat of Christ, that was a place where ancient Roman cultures sat in judgment, Uh, we will be judged by that and our lives will be judged. It's important for each believer to carefully consider how can I honor Jesus Christ with my life? How can I further his kingdom and bring God the most glory in that way? Because I will be held to account for that. Now, again, it's not a judgment that the believer will face versus heaven and hell, but it's a judgment regarding reward in the age to come. And even though we're not fundamentally or primarily uh, governed or uh, motivated by that aspect of reward, it has something to do with it, of course. We care. We care. We care about the reward that we may or may not receive on that last day. So Mary, I hope that answers that question for you. Thank you for writing in that question. Uh, We like to be able to get to whatever questions we can And in just a moment, I'm going to turn my attention to the questions that come in over our live chat. Uh, Sorry for the little bit late start that we got today. I want to say particularly sorry to our TWR 360 audience. They may have been anticipating us getting started, but we're very grateful for the partnership that we have with TWR 360 and the wonderful work that they do all around the world. Okay, now let me say one more thing before we get into the questions that have come in on the live chat. I want to welcome you all to myself here in this unusual setting that I have. I'm in a particular room at a conference center in the mountains of Southern California, the San Bernardino Mountains, and the retreat place is called Forest Home. And one of the reasons I love coming to this retreat place is it's a retreat center with a very rich history. And part of its rich history, it's not just about one or two events, but many events, Part of its rich history is that it was right here that Billy Graham had what some people call a landmark experience with God, where he came very close to giving up the ministry and losing his confidence in the authority and in the trustworthiness of the Bible, the Word of God. And very faithfully, God saw Billy Graham through that sort of crisis that crisis or testing of his faith. And I think that there's a really wonderful untold story behind that. It has to do with a man who's, that I greatly admire and I've been a great admirer of his ministry, even though he passed on to glory well more than 25 years ago. This man is Jay Edwin so I wanna recommend a video to you on the same YouTube channel. The video is called The Landmark Experience of Billy Graham uh, the untold story of Billy and Dr. J. Edwin Orr. Look that video up. I know that Devin's gonna put it in the comments here so you can click onto it. Don't look at it right now. Save and look at it later. Stay with us on our live chat right now on our, uh, on our Q&A that's gonna last approximately till the top of the next hour. Uh, stay with us here, but look that up. We'll put it in the details of the video as well. That video I think is well, it's my effort to tell the story of what God did right here at this place, Forest Home Conference Center, with Billy Graham and the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr, and, and how you can find the messages that Dr. J. Edwin Orr and Billy Graham delivered as both the morning and evening speakers at a uh, college prep briefing retreat uh, here in 1949. So anyway, I recommend that to you, and Devin's put it in the comments. We'll put it in the details of the video as well. All right, with that, let me go to the questions that you have submitted on the live chat and that have been forwarded to me through our moderator, Devin. Let me sort of get at a little arrangement here so I can look down and take a look at these things. Sorry for the shakiness there. I've got my um, iPhone on a little stand that I use, uh, and it's perched just on a chair and on top of a little box. So I tried to set something on the chair and it looked like an earthquake was happening here. No earthquake here in the San Bernardino Mountains, but I'm looking over here and seeing that Andromedia, uh, Andromeda, perhaps is a better way to say it, asked this question. When I'm praying, is it okay to ask for the salvation of many people at the same time, like my family? Or is it more powerful if I mention the name of each person one by one and a phrase? Oh, Andromeda... Look, I do think that it's more meaningful to pray name by name, person by person, but the prayers in general are not meaningless and insignificant. I remember that the Apostle Paul mentions a few times in his letters that he makes mention of people in prayer. And to me, I think that there's a very valid place for prayer that simply makes mention of people, Uh, whether it makes mention of them in a group such as their family, whether it makes mention of them individually. And I want you to know that in my own prayer life, uh, especially when my wife and I pray together, we'll do both. Sometimes we'll make mention in prayer of particular people and then other times we'll pray in a very general sense. Now, I do think that it's possible for prayers to get so general that they are essentially meaningless. Honestly, I think that prayers like this are basically meaningless. Prayers like the following, Lord, save everybody in the world. Lord, save everybody in Africa. Lord, save everybody in my city. honestly, I, I think that prayers like that are so general as to be essentially meaningless, but you're not talking about that, Andromeda. You're talking about, Lord, bring salvation to everyone in my family. Now, I don't think that's a bad prayer at all, and that prayer is better than no prayer, to be certain. But yet, I do think that there is somewhat more heart, intensity, interest, focus in prayer that goes one by one. So Andromeda, I would just say, while not calling the general prayer for your family bad in any way at all, because I would put it under that category that the Apostle Paul did about making mention in prayer, I would say that it is even more effective to pray more specifically, more pointedly along the way. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Next question here comes from Jordan. Jordan asks, do you believe that some believers are more anointed than others? Can you explain why some believers evidently have a more spirit-filled life than others? Well, Jordan, this is an excellent question. And it's something that sometimes maybe we feel a little bit of hesitancy in talking about. I I do want to stress, first of all, that in a general sense, every believer, everyone who is disciple of Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we speak without a lot of accuracy and we talk as if some believers have the Holy Spirit and some believers don't. Listen, the Bible tells us that if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to God every believer has the Holy Spirit. Yet, the Bible also talks about the concepts of being able to quench the Spirit. There is talk in the Bible about hindrance of the work of the Spirit. Uh, There's exhortation to be filled with the Spirit. And these things indicate that perhaps the operation of the Holy Spirit is not equal in everybody's life. That there are some people who are um, just more in flow, more in sync with the Holy Spirit. Now, your question is, to what do we attribute this? Well, I, I think in some sense, it can be attributed to just a greater desire, a greater willingness. Look, there's a whole scale of humanity. There's a whole scale of engagement that people have with the things of God. And there are some people who are definitely believers, but they don't have a lot of interest in going deeper or going further in their Christian life. And again, it's good that they're believers. We're not saying that it's bad in any way, but they they just have as much engagement with the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit as they care to have. And honestly, it may not be that much. But then there's other people who seem to have a great passion, a great desire to follow after the things of God. And basically, they seek more. They seek after God more. They they pray more. They fast more. They are more intent in seeking after God. And there is a principle where God says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. I just think that this is an undeniable phenomenon. Now, there is an inherent danger in that phenomenon, and it is the great danger of having sort of this two-tier Christianity, where you have the really spiritual people, then you have the people who are less spiritual. I I, I think that that's a complete misreading, not only of the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's also true that it's a misreading of um, the understanding of the body of Christ. Look, God's work and the furtherance of his kingdom needs people of all sorts. And there are some people who just kind of inherently are more given to an interest in spiritual things. There are other people who kind of inherently are given to less interest in spiritual things. They're more practical people. But let me tell you, the kingdom of God needs people who are good engineers, (laughs) needs people who are good with mechanics, needs people who are good with the very practical things. So we dare not make sort of a class system or a tier system where you have an upper tier and a lower tier. No, God uses everybody collectively in the work of his kingdom. But at the same time, we do need to acknowledge the reality that's presented us both biblically and then also just from our personal experience that some people seek after things in a greater way. So, okay, let me come back to your question here. In one sense, all believers are anointed. I remember the words in 1 John, I can't tell you which specific chapter and verse, but in 1 John, John declares, you have an anointing, speaking to the people of God in general. Okay, so that's undeniable, that's present. Then in another aspect, there are some people who seem to have a greater experience and a greater use of the Holy Spirit, and we can in part attribute this to just a greater seeking, a greater pursuit of these things. But then I'll give you one other aspect to it. Look. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just pours himself out upon very unlikely people. There's no explanation for this. It's part of the sovereignty of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be very careful to never say that just because the Holy Spirit uses somebody in a remarkable way, that that person is especially holy, that they're especially awesome, that they're especially godly. Maybe yes, but maybe no, again, Because the Holy Spirit has a way of simply using people in a unique and powerful way, sometimes completely detached from that individual's work. Um, Or or godliness, I should say. So again, Jordan, I hope that answers that for you. Um, There is a difference. Number one, everybody has the Holy Spirit who is a disciple of Jesus, who is born again by God's Spirit. Uh, Some people seem to seek the things of the Spirit more than others, and they are thus rewarded, but then the Holy Spirit, thirdly, can sometimes just do unusual things, sovereign things that we can't quite explain. Okay, let me go on to the next question from uh, Zermaldo, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Listen, let me just say, I I, um, am very aware that we have quite an international audience I'm very happy about that, but it does mean that sometimes the names that come to me, I'm not too good at pronouncing, but I'm so pleased that we have an international audience on our weekly Q&A. Anyway, uh, Zermaldo asks a timeline question. What happens first, the Gog and Magog War or the Armageddon War? Okay, Zermaldo, um, that's a difficult question because I don't think that there is a conclusive answer to that question biblically. I'm inclined to believe that the Gog and Magog war that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, excuse me, in the book of Ezekiel, what is that, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, I'm inclined to believe that that happens before the battle of Armageddon. However, the book of Revelation mentions a definite gathering of Gog uh, at the end of all things, after the battle of Armageddon. Um, I think that those are distinct things But I will have to admit that the Bible isn't as clear on those things as would satisfy all of our curiosity. So uh, I would be inclined to think that the Gog and Magog battle that's described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 comes before the Battle of Armageddon, but I don't think it's conclusive. Um, Zumeraldo, I would really recommend to you that you go to my written commentary on Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. You'll find it on the website, enduringword.com. Go to enduringword.com, look up Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Spend some time looking at that and I think that it would be a blessing for you and give you some insights, at least to my perspectives, on that very interesting section where it talks about Gog and Magog. I know that I go into it in some depth upon my commentary. And I invite everybody, of course, in our listening audience. Um, If we've never connected in that way before, I do have a written commentary in the entire Bible. You can find it at EnduringWord.com. You can also find it at BlueLetterBible.com, and you can find it on our app. Let me tell you, I am absolutely thrilled with the updates we've been able to make to our app. Our development team for the app is doing such an amazing job, constantly improving it. And it's so exciting to see what's happening with our app. I believe that when you combine both iOS and Android, we have something like half a million downloads of our app, it's completely free. Did I need to mention that? It's completely free. And of course our website's completely free. We don't even have paid ads on the website. We want it to be a great user experience. So that's how we uh, work through that and get our biblical content out there. Um, Okay, so I hope that's helpful for you there, Zimraldo. Uh, Anahui asked this question. Hey there, Anahui, nice to see you. Um, Anahui asked this question. What does it mean in Ephesians 6, verse 18 to pray in the spirit? Um, Again, uh, let me read to you Ephesians chapter six verse eighteen. It says, this, "Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints." Okay. So, anyways, just asking this simple question: What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Okay. To pray in the Spirit simply means to pray. Uh, by the empowering, by the wisdom, by the help of the Holy Spirit. Some people, I think, misunderstand that and would connect it only with the idea of praying with the gift of tongues, which is more completely described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as it might relate to a public meeting. I would say that praying with the gift of tongues includes praying in the Spirit. But the idea of praying in the Spirit goes much beyond that. Um, Anytime we pray truly guided by the Holy Spirit, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, it is something that we can say that we are generally praying in the Spirit. I think this is sometimes something we lose sight of, that when we pray to God, it's not just a matter of our prayer going up to God, but God wants to help us as we pray. And that's one of the works of the Holy Spirit, to help the believer as he or she prays and brings this supplication to the Lord. So really, that's what we're talking about when we talk about this idea of praying in the Spirit. Um, It would include the idea of praying with the gift of tongues, but it is by no means limited to that. Um, You can pray genuinely in the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, with wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit. You can pray in the Spirit uh, and pray very effectively without ever necessarily praying in tongues. Okay, thank you for that question there, Ana Before I go on, let me just again greet you all and explain to you that I'm not bringing you this Q&A from my home. I'm on the road, so to speak. I'm here for a week of family camp at Forest Home. Forest Home is a wonderful, historic retreat center, a Christian camp here in the mountains of Southern California, the San Bernardino Mountains and I'm here as the evening speaker for this week's family camp. If I may say, what a wonderful time we've been having here. And uh, I know myself and my family, uh, we've really enjoyed, especially my two grandkids. They've enjoyed this time immensely. So that's why I'm in a different place and why we started a little bit late because of some technical challenges with that. Let me continue on here with a question from Zoen, who asked this question is Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus's ministry? And then here's the verse. Behold, I will send for many fishers, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and from the holes of the rocks. Well, so that's a great question. And I want you to know that as soon as you ask that question and as I give it through the quick read through in my mind, I would say I have no idea what you're talking about with that. So I'll tell you what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna look it up on my commentary. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go to Jeremiah chapter 16. So here I am with my uh, laptop. I've just come to EnduringWord.com. I'm going to Jeremiah. That's chapter one. Here's Jeremiah chapter 16. Let's see what I'm going to talk about here. See what I wrote on that when I went through the book of Jeremiah very carefully. Let's see what my comments are on Jeremiah chapter 16. Okay, I'm going to read to you here from the New King James Version. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. Okay, now, since the context of Jeremiah chapter 16, is the judgment of God. These fishermen that God describes in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, these are not fishers of men in the sense of those out seeking to make disciples of Jesus Christ. These are fishers of men in a negative sense. God would send metaphorical fishermen and metaphorical hunters upon his rebellious people to capture them for the promised judgment in exile. The, the point of it is simply this. They could not hide from the God whose eyes were on all their ways. That's how verse 17 begins. So we read Jeremiah sixteen sixteen. Let me begin now with verse 17. God says this, For my eyes are on all their ways, and they are not hidden from my face. So through the prophet Jeremiah, God simply gave this very poetic and I think powerful description of telling the people of Israel there was no way that they would escape the judgment that God was going to bring on them. This is a theme that's present through a lot of the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, in a large way, has the theme of telling people in the kingdom of Judah in the days of Jeremiah, that the judgment they would face was inescapable. Listen, there are times when God announces judgment and then relents from his judgment because people repent. We find a great example of that in the book of Jonah with the response of the people of the city of Nineveh. Now, judgment eventually came to Nineveh, but not in the days of Jonah. They put off the judgment of God by many years because of their repentance. But I would just simply say that this whole phenomenon of God announcing judgment and the inevitability of the judgment as described in the book of Jeremiah, that's really what it's getting at there in sort of this poetic description in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16. These metaphorical fishers and hunters are people who will hunt out the people of the kingdom of Judah for the judgment that is sure to come upon them. So thank you for that, Zoan. I think that's a great question. And look, I feel like I know the Bible pretty well, but I don't know everything in the Bible at immediate command. So there's many times when I have to look up in my own commentary to say, look, I know that I've gone through this passage before carefully. Let me look at what I've said before and I'll think through it again. And maybe it will give me the key to understanding or explaining it. And that's really just what we did right here in Jeremiah chapter 16. Next question comes from Barry. Barry asks this question. What year did you begin writing your Bible commentary? What year did you finish? Do you continually update it presently? Well, Barry, thank you for asking those questions. I love talking about my Bible commentary just like anybody loves talking about their life's work. If somebody's life's work was to build a house, they'd love talking about the house. Somebody's life's work was to have a medical practice. They'd love talking about their medical practice. Well, my life's work is to write and present and distribute and platform in any way that I can this commentary that I have in the entire Bible. And Barry, I can't give you an exact date, but I can give you pretty close. The work that is now presented as my commentary on the Bible began in probably about 1985. In the year 1985, I was one of the pastors of a relatively small church in Oxnard, California. Uh, That's in Ventura County, California. My good friend, good friend to this day, my friend Pastor Lance Ralston and I, together, we put together two home Bible studies in September or August of 1982, 40 years ago now. And we started Calvary Chapel of Oxnard. Well, somewhere around, at least according to my memory, maybe if I look back, I could get more specific with the date. But somewhere around 1985, uh, we had decided through just prayer and seeking the Lord that I would begin teaching a midweek Bible study through the book of Revelation. And for some reason... I know some of it had to do with the university studies. I was going at the time, or maybe at that time it was junior college. Uh, But through my studies at that time, I decided that it would start to format my teaching notes in a particular way. You know, beginning with a Roman numeral and then going in outline subheading. I think in community college, I picked up this way of outlining and it just seemed to make sense to me. So I decided to apply that way of outlining to my teaching notes, my teaching preparation. And really, that was the beginning of what appears today as my Bible commentary. Because as I often tell people, if you've heard this before, I'm sorry for the repetition, but um, as I often tell people, I never set out to write Bible commentary. I just found out that what I prepare for myself as teaching notes was helpful for other people as Bible commentary. So it was somewhere around 1985 that I started preparing my teaching notes for verse-by-verse teaching through books of the Bible in this format that you see in the commentary now. So I would say that that would be the beginning of my Bible commentary, 1985. Now, here we are more than 35 years later, and I say that I finished my work of writing the Bible commentary about... I think it was about four years ago. Um, Boy, I I should have that date better in mind. But to my recollection, it was somewhere about four years ago. I I need to go back and mark that date very carefully because it was sort of an epic date for me. The last book of the Bible that I came to uh, in, teaching through, or at least preparing teaching notes for, even if I wasn't going to actually teach it before a congregation, certainly I could prepare my notes for teaching through it as if I was going to teach it before a congregation. The last book of the Bible that I tackled was Proverbs. And to my recollection, I finished the book of Proverbs sometime in 2018. So basically, it was well more than 30 years of work in that Bible commentary, and It's undergoing constant revision and hopefully improvement. Um, We get grammatical and proofreading corrections in all the time for the work we do, so we're always trying to improve it that way. But then also, I'm going back through the oldest content and revising it, and we put out that new edition out on the commentary when I'm finished. Right now, I'm working through the book of Numbers, Kinda kills me that I don't have as much time to give to that project, at least in the last couple of months. But I wish I had more and more time to give it because I love doing that work. So right now I'm about up to chapter 23 in the Book of Numbers, revising it. It's tremendously edifying and a great blessing to me to do that. When I'm done with the Book of Numbers, we'll put that updated content on the website and out on our various platforms. So Barry, I hope that that answers your question. Um, I started writing it, at least in its present format, somewhere around 1985. Uh, I finished it somewhere around 2018. And yes, I am constantly revising it and updating it, both with small corrections, you know, a mistake here and there, misspelled word, bad reference, something like that, um, with small corrections, but also with substantial revisions to the best of my ability as I can give it time. Thank you, Barry, for that question. Uh, Christian asked this question, uh, question, what would be an equivalent to sackcloth and ashes nowadays? Christian, that's a very good question. I don't know if I have an immediate answer to that. Now, sackcloth and ashes in the ancient world, in the biblical world, was an emblem of mourning. That's something that you wore when you were in mourning over somebody's death. So uh, it was a way to afflict yourself. Sackcloth is a rough kind of fabric to wear. Nobody looks forward to wearing sackcloth on their skin because it's itchy, it doesn't feel good. It's not like a nice cotton or velvet. It's uncomfortable. Ashes just kind of have the significance of being dirty. Uh, I don't know if you ever mess around with an ash pit. You know, we have a fire pit in our own back garden and we love to sit around and make fires, but those ashes that come from the ash pit, it's pretty messy. So it was a way to afflict oneself, to demonstrate your sorrow, to demonstrate your grief, your mourning. Now, here's the thing. In our modern world, we really don't have universal emblems of that. Sometimes people will wear black, but that's kind of old-fashioned. In some cultures, people would wear a black armband, and sometimes for a long time. In certain cultures, people would set up a particular picture or put a black band over a picture of the deceased in their home, and they would do that for a set period of time. So there are different customs that people would practice in the modern day, but they're by no means universal. So I don't think we have an equivalent to sackcloth and ashes that people did in biblical times. And let me say this, I don't know if this is sort of inherent in your question, Christian, but I don't know if we're the better for it. I, 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 don't, I, I think maybe we would be healthier as a society, first of all, if we were more straightforward in the way that we dealt with death. Our main way of dealing with death in our modern world is to avoid the idea altogether. But I think it's good for us to be coming back to the question again and again, we are going to die and we're gonna to have to face our maker. People just wanna forget about it today, but it's good for us to be reminded of our own mortality. And it's also a valid way to honor the dead. So, those were things that were expressed in sackcloth and ashes. In the biblical world, I don't know that we have a universal equivalent to it today, uh, but certainly we have some things that mark it. You know, uh, a memorial service, an obituary in the paper, but those aren't ways that people necessarily afflict themselves. That was part of the idea of sackcloth and ashes. Uh, It was a way to demonstrate your sorrow over the dead by afflicting oneself. Okay, let me go to the next question that comes from Ethan. Ethan asks this question, how is my relationship with God supposed to feel like? I've been angry with God or at God. Does this damn me? You know, Ethan, what a wonderful question. Let me deal with the first part of your question. What is your relationship with God supposed to feel like? Well, Ethan, let me just ask you, what is your relationship with any other person supposed to feel like? Now, I'm not implying that your relationship with God should be just as you might have with any other person, but certainly in some way it's going to be similar. What is your relationship with any other person supposed to feel like? And the answer is just, well, it feels different things in different situations. Sometimes our relationships are so happy and wonderful and beautiful and powerful. Sometimes our relationships are tough and we feel like we're not getting along. Sometimes we get anger towards a person we're uh, in relationship. Sometimes we can be disappointed with the person we're in relationship with. Sometimes we can just be out of our minds in love and happy with somebody that we're in relationship. All of these things can be reflected in our relationship with God. Now, it goes without saying, but I need to say it anyway, that the huge difference in our relationship with God is that God is holy and perfect, and any other human relationship that we have with any other person is not marked by that. Ethan, I I, I don't want to say this in any way that might sound judgmental or condemning, but I just need to lay it out there. Whenever there's a problem in our relationship with God, God is not at fault. Now, sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes we may even put blame upon God. But please understand this. God cannot sin. He's never been bad to us. It may feel like it and we may experience it. But it's not true. So there's no one way that our relationship with God is supposed to feel. And Ethan, I'll have to tell you, I feel a little bit suspicious of people who act as if their relationship with God is always beauty and power and greatness, and they never seem to have any difficulties in their relationship with God. It makes me wonder if there's any true depth in their relationship. Okay, that's the one aspect. Ethan, let me answer the different second aspect. You also say that you've been angry at God. Does this damn me? No, it does not, but you need to be careful with what you do with your anger with God. Listen, Ethan, if you're angry with God, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to tell him so. Now, you need to do it with the recognition that you're wrong and God is right. But if you're angry with God, be honest with him about it. Ethan you can bring the real you to the real Jesus. You don't have to be fake. You don't have to be phony with God. If you feel angry with God, tell him so. Just don't think that you're actually justified in your anger because you're not. God is perfect. And if there's a dispute between God and me, I'll tell you what, I'm wrong and God's right. But It's good, it's proper, and it's healthy for us to be open and honest in our relationship with God and simply to tell him and to confess it to him. Ethan, I think it's completely fine and appropriate for you to pray something like this. God, I feel angry with you right now. I know it's not right. I know that the problem isn't with you, it's with me, but I can't deny how I feel right now. I feel angry and I bring these feelings to you and I ask that you help me deal with them and I lay them down before your throne and say, God, help me work through this. I know you're a righteous God, but I can't deny that I feel angry with you because of A, B, and C, and you explain why to God. You can do that. You can be honest before God, and it's a very good thing to do. All right, let me look next to our next question from Ed. Ed asks this question. Can you further explain Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, about avenging the death of the martyrs and the meaning of until the number of their fellow servants who would be killed was completed? Uh, I'm going to read to you now from the New King James, uh, Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. And I would just simply explain it like this. I believe that this passage from Revelation chapter six speaks in broad terms of calamity that will come upon the world in a specific period of time that precedes the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we call that the last seven years, sometimes it's called the great tribulation, whatever you wanna call it. There's a definite period of time that the Bible describes that precedes the glorious return of Jesus Christ That glorious return is described in Revelation chapter 19. And what's described here in Revelation chapter six is part of that. It describes a severe persecution that those who come to faith in Jesus Christ during that great period will have to endure. And what God is simply saying here is that there is in the mind and in the wisdom of God, a specific number of those martyrs who will be fulfilled And God will not pour out his answer against those persecutors until that number of specific martyrs has been fulfilled. It's a way of demonstrating the sovereignty of God over all of these things. God will not respond to those persecutors until the specific number that he has allowed to be persecuted unto death, martyred and and sent unto glory, the glory of, of a glorious martyrdom before God in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, it's speaking of the number of those martyrs being fulfilled. So and that's what I think it's pot, talking about there in that Revelation chapter six passage. Our next question comes from Rain. Rain asks this question, what scripture or guidance should I share with youth who use cuss words but are active in ministry? I don't want to come off as judgmental, but want to open their eyes to this issue. Listen, Rain, um, maybe you and I come from the same generation, but I'm one of those who think that when the Bible says that we should allow no impure communication to come out of our mouth, that especially those who feel some kind of call to ministry should take that to heart and say that we should let no impure communication come out of our mouth. I mean, there's, there's scriptures that speak very much about the importance of the words we say as demonstrations of our righteousness, of our walk with God. And I think it is particularly the responsibility of those who want to represent Jesus Christ and serve the body of Christ by having a call and fulfilling a call to ministry that they should particularly say, I'm not gonna use profanity. I'm not gonna swear. I'm gonna choose better words to express myself. I know that with a younger generation, they seem much less concerned about this, but honestly, I think that they should be concerned. I think it's something that God is concerned. Now, is it possible to make too much of the issue to act as if a believer or a pastor is gonna lose all his reward and if he's gonna be cast out of the kingdom of God for saying swear words or using profanity? No, I don't wanna exaggerate it, but neither do I wanna minimize it either. I... I just wonder why those who are serving the Lord just don't aspire to do better, to speak better, and to show themselves, dare I say it, intelligent. It's just so lazy to use all the profanity that people use today. How lazy it is to speak that way. And I don't think it's honoring to the Lord. So, Rain, you ask me what you can say. I would say just, I would just communicate that heart to them. But at the same time, we got to acknowledge this. There is a such thing as a well chosen, spirit inspired word of admonishment, word of correction, word of rebuke. Those things are very real. However, there's also such a thing as just nagging. I don't want to be a nag. I might say something to somebody and they understand how I feel about it. If they don't receive it, hey, it's between them and the Lord. So I don't want to nag, but I don't want to close myself off from using a spirit-inspired, well-appropriate word in a particular saying to somebody. So that's really how I see it, Rain. And I I would just, in general, agree with you that, um, especially, and now I, I think there's a place for this for normal, everyday believers. But especially anybody who feels called to ministry as a pastor, an elder, serving the Lord, they they just shouldn't let, as the Bible says, let no impure communication come out of your mouth. I think that kind of covers it. Okay, uh, last question. I think it is from N. Can you please? give advice on how to read the Old Testament without feeling like you're reading a history book. Well, and here's the deal. Sometime when you're reading the, the Old Testament, you are reading a history book, but here's the difference. It's a history book, all right, watch what I do now, that doesn't just tell you history, it tells you his story. Of course, you put his story together, it says history, but that's just sort of a little... Word game that we use to explain this sometimes. The Old Testament tells the story of what God does, but it tells it in His story. And and what you need to always keep a mind on as you read through the Old Testament or the historical passage of the Old Testament is what is God's story in the midst of this? What is God doing in this? I see that man did this, man did that, did all the other things and that's the story of history, yes, but what I'm really concerned is what did God do and what does that say about the nature of God, the promise of God in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the way that God wants to relate to his people right here, right now. So just don't look for the history, look beyond the story to look to his story. Now, I will tell you this, I myself, and this just maybe look, I was a history major in university. I love the study of history. Uh, Right now I'm teaching a online video history class for a Bible school or a school of missions in Africa. And I'm very excited to be doing that. We're gonna be releasing some of those videos on this very same YouTube channel. Some people will be interested, some people won't, but we'll release them nevertheless. Uh, I'm fascinated by history. But even more importantly, I'm fascinated to see God's hand at work in and through history. So I hope that's helpful for you, Anne. Well, that's going to close it for today. Listen, God willing, and if we live, I'm going to join you next week. Uh, you can pray for us because, listen, sometimes the technical challenges, just like the technical challenges I face today in getting today's program started, sometimes are very discouraging to me. And they say, look, why do this at all? Um, but... Uh, once we got started, everything was fine. In any regard, God willing and if we live, I'm gonna do my Q&A next week from Sweden, where I'm going for a conference and then also to visit family. So looking forward to that trip. And again, if everything works out, I'll be joining you next Thursday at this very same time, noon Pacific West Coast time in the United States, whatever time it is for you in your time zone. A week from now, we'll be joining you. But thank you for joining me here today from Forest Home Retreat Center in the beautiful mountains of Southern California. Glad you could join me. God bless you. And I hope that you're able to join us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.